Welcome to the Love Good Podcast brought to you by our patrons. This is Jimmy Mitchell, your host. Join me each week as I sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about music, culture, and what we call the art of being human. You see, Love Good's more than a subscription company. We're a movement of artists and patrons who believe in the power of beauty to evangelize our culture. And we're so pumped you're here. Oh boy, oh boy. Today I get to sit down with Dr. Ryan Hanning again, and we're diving into it. Which, you know, that's not really a new thing for Ryan and I, but we do love these kind of conversations specifically about culture and the arts. So it was years ago that Ryan brought me in to speak at a a conference. It was almost like a colloquium, way above my pay grade, out in Phoenix. And the keynote speaker was Dana Joya, who's the former director of the National Endowment for the Arts. It's a presidential appointment, a, a hugely influential role in the life of American culture. And he was in that, I don't know, for at least eight years. I think it was under President Bush. So Dana Julia has always been one of these people that I've, I've loved and admired at a distance. He's one of the only, if not the only living poet that I'm actually a fan of. I've always had a hard time with poetry, you know, just full disclosure here. The fact that we named this episode Why Poetry Matters was as much for me as it was for anybody because, you know, I've never been able to just sit down and and crank through Dante, right? I've never had an easy time with, you know, most sort of ancient poets or even poets that weren't, you know, in the last 50 years, like Robert Frost. But Dana Julia is alive and well and kicking it, right? Really putting out incredible work. And not only is he, of course, a a celebrated poet, he's also a really important literary critic for these times and and a cultural analyst of these times. So anyways, I'm not sitting down with Dana Joya. I've now set it up almost like I am, but I am sitting down with Dr. Ryan Hanning to talk about Dana Joya, to read a few of his poems out loud, and to just talk about the, the importance of living with the sacramental imagination and really being good curators, critical curators of the kind of music books, art, film that we allow into our lives to make sure that it it really does reflect this sacramental imagination that we long for, that we're made for. Really fun conversation. I'll be back with Ryan in just a moment. But for now, this is a live cut from Ginny and Tyler from our most recent Fireside Sessions in Nashville. I have heard stories and miracles have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I have a dream of a different world where the waters of the road and the earth thirsts no more. Roll, roll down, roll loud, resound. Ryan Hanning. Yeah, it's good to be back. So today you, you had Baja Burrito for the first time. It was pretty good. You know, I know it's changed your life. You know, I mean- <laughs> It didn't blow you away. I can tell It I was good. It. it was good. Yeah. But I mean, I grew up in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you you hit, you, you throw a stone, you hit like an amazing 
Mexican restaurant. Yeah. So, it was good though. It was For those good. who don't know, Baja Burrito is everything Chipotle wants to be. It's just a local Nashville. It's actually a chain now. So you ever seen Blue Coast Burrito? Yeah. Same company. Same people anyways. It was before, you know, if Chipotle wasn't bought out by McDonald's, what they might oh, be now. I know. <laughs> Anything bought by McDonald's, you just got to look out for. You know? Yeah. Nice. Well, it's so good to have you back. It's been a month. There's yeah. obviously a lot happening in our own lives and in the world. And I guess since this episode is releasing in May, I'm kind of getting to the end of my first ever school year, not as a student, which is crazy. Did you ever see me in education? You know, I, I could see it. Yeah, because you know yeah. I don't teach. I mean, no, I, I know, but you have a heart to bring people the truth. Yeah, I and mean, that's that's what education is. It's like, cool. I mean, we've been know? talking about it off and on these last few months, but you know, there's just nothing like being in a community. I mean, I'm actually wearing my my Jesuit gear today. Yeah, feel, feel I'm pretty good way about way that. It, yeah. I was a, a bigger fan of Under Armour. Okay. To be honest, growing up, than Nike. I wish we had more of an Under Armour brand going here, but Nike it is. Nike it is. You know, I take for granted that high schools have such a history and culture and you know for most people stepping into an environment like that the big adjustment is getting used to just how things are mm-hmm. i had been doing retreats and pilgrimages for this school with the school for six years okay. so there was no enculturation process i mean i i dove in in day one i was like I know, I know this these are my people and this is my way of being i just everything about it was right but what's interesting to me is i don't know that that's always been the case mm-hmm. especially in some of the more kind of pronounced formative experiences of my life, I've often stepped in feeling very much like a fish out of water. And, you know, I probably haven't told you this, but the first time you ever brought me to Phoenix, whatever that was, six, seven years ago. Can you believe it's been that long? Something like that. And even, you know, many of the, the subsequent trips, I always felt a little out of my depth. Not just because you're awesome and brilliant and so smart, but the kinds of things that you were asking of me, I was like, okay, this guy really trusts me. And now, you, you I, delivered, now I get though. to step up. Every, every <laughs> time he delivers. Like, yeah. so, what do you want me to do, man? It was, but it, it, it was it, great. It, it, for me, it kind of hit a whole new threshold of of thought, of you know, even just like giving talks to college-age crowds and older, to to have more of an intellectual bent in a lot of the, the work that I had been doing. Because up until that point, it was much more focused on, you know, straight evangelization, camps, retreats, mostly high school age and younger, if anything. And I want to say you were probably one of those people who helped me turn the corner and realize, hey, actually, there's there's a message here for not just, you know, the, the, the everyday, like, kid that I'm meeting on retreats and pilgrimages and summer camps, but, you know, all the way up to great academics who are similarly struggling to integrate their lives with the faith. Yeah, you know? I remember the first time you came out to Arizona. So we were hosting an event at University of Mary in our partnership with Arizona State University, right? So it's such a unique setting. In, in the which, new chapel. In the new chapel, yeah. yeah. It's just beautiful. And so you know, we had the situation where we were able to take students who had selected for very good reasons to go to a large, you know, you know, tier one research institution, but secular research institution, but still had the opportunity through the University of, Part- University of Mary partnership to study their faith as well at the yeah. highest academic level. But we want to have these opportunities for the students to sort of enter into the conversation intellectually, but not academically. Interesting. And so the, I remember talking to people and they're like, hey, we just saw this guy at Seek, Jimmy Mitchell. We should invite him. So we invite you out and you did a talk on how beauty speaks to us. 
And I remember it was hard because you're not a huge group, but we're in that big, beautiful chapel. Right. There's maybe 30, 40 students. But these are students who are interested and committed. These are yeah. students who are reading Dostoevsky and, and, and walking through this stuff. And I remember one of the students afterwards reflecting upon the first experience with you was that everything you said, they had already sort of heard. You know, mm. like, oh, this is good reinforcement. <laughs> but something happened to me. And that was, then you went up to play the piano. Yeah. And everything you just said came to life, mm. right? Everything you just said about, you know, with the principles of beauty and how they move the heart, mm. you know, were now manifested in, in, in the two pieces you played. Mm. And after that, we're like, all right, we're going to invite you back a few times. So we had, all, we had cool. fun, man. We had all those little colloquia. Yeah, so we had yeah. twice a year, we do a th- uh, theological studies colloquia, which we would bring in professors, both from ASU and elsewhere and mm-hmm. around a topic. We did it four times, and then a Catholic <laughs> studies colloquia. And one of those times, we were both able to fall in love uh, with a guy named Dana Joya. A, what a guy. A, a poet. An author, an essayist. Uh, an appointee under President Bush. Yeah, and, and as, maintained under Clinton and others. And oh, wow. He was the, yeah, the chairman for the Endowment of the Humanities and Arts. What a genius. Amazing guy. He's a poet laureate in California. Teaches still at USC. And was the former CEO of one of the largest agricultural food companies in the world. That's so crazy. He was writing, he, he was, so Dana Joy is who we're talking about. Amazing guy. We can kind of call him friend. And we've met him, we've hung out, we've drank beer with him and ate meals and discussed theology and poetry, um, <laughs> but you know, was, was clandestinely writing poetry while he was the CEO of this major company Yeah, and literally quit his job, you know, resigned to pursue the, pursue beauty. Yeah. Anyways, we got to, we got to bask in his presence for a few days. And it's funny after talking to him, like after that, like hearing his sort of, you know, like take on it, I followed up with him, you know, a few years after that, we had run into each other. He's like, oh, I remember coming in just like, being with you guys. I mean, so like, sort of the way that we felt with him mm. was kind of how he felt with us, which was like really deeply honoring to hear him say that. But That's pretty cool. we should introduce some of the listeners of podcasts just to his probably principal essay. Well, I was going to ask you actually. Yeah. So let's talk about the essay in a moment. Yeah. But maybe we could begin with one of his poems. Okay. I'm going to let you set this up. Do you have a favorite? I have a few favorites of Dana Joyous. Yeah. So Sequoia is probably my favorite. Okay. It's, it's a time that came to him after deep loss. Sequoia. Sequoia. Well, yeah. you introduce it, I'll look it up. And to give you like the the backdrop, he and his wife had a deep loss of, of an infant child. And in it, he's trying to um, come to terms with it and trying to, to enter into the suffering. And so he, he writes, you know, his poems as a way to do this. And so it's a relatively long poem, but the, the premise is that, that certain things last in life. This is called Planting a Sequoia? Planting a Sequoia, yeah. Would you like to read it to Yeah, us? yeah, let's do it. So I'm not going to do it joy- justice. If you get a chance, Dan Joya, when... He talks about he never, he doesn't read his poetry. He gives his poetry. Love that. Right? Like, so, because reading's too passive. So he'll do these from memory to like an enchanted audience and his syntax. And like, you haven't heard poetry. Like, same thing with Wendell Berry. When he gives his poetry, he's not just reading it. He is like giving it. Mm. So anyways, planting a sequoia. All afternoon, my brothers and I have worked in the orchard, digging this hole, laying you into it carefully packing the soil. Rain blackened the horizon, but cold winds kept it over the Pacific, and the sky above us stayed the dull gray of an old year coming to an end. In Sicily, a father plants a tree to celebrate his first son's birth, an olive or a fig tree, a sign that the earth has one more life to bear. I would have done the same, proudly laying new stock into my father's orchard, a green sapling rising among the twisted apple boughs, a promise of new fruit in other autumns. 
But today we kneel on the cold planting you, our native giant, defying the practical custom of our fathers, wrapping in your roots a lock of hair, a piece of an infant's birth cord, all that remains above earth of a firstborn son, a few stray atoms brought back to the elements. We will give you what we can, our labor and our soil, water drawn from the earth when the skies fail, nights scented with the ocean fog, days softened by the circuit of bees. We plant you in the corner of the grove, bathed in western light, a slender shoot against the sunset. And when our family is no more, all of his unborn brothers dead, every niece and nephew scattered, the house torn down, his mother's beauty ashes in the air, I want you to stand among strangers, all young and ephemeral to you, silently keeping the secret of your birth. I remember Dandre giving that poem and as a father being so struck. And, you know, the, his name gives it away. He's Sicilian, right? His background. You know, Joy is spelled G-I-O-I-A. And you're hearing that and then hearing his personal story of loss and just the ability that that beauty has to be therapeutic in terms of helping us process suffering, process joy, but not sanitizing it. Mm. I mean, like all the angst and all the emotion, all the loss is there in that poem. Without pulling any punches, I mean, your heart yearns for the father and his brothers who are planting the sequoia with with a locket of hair Mm. and a piece of the flesh of their now dead son. And, And you this is this is what poetry is meant to do. It's it's meant to convey the reality of of the here but not yet, right? And it has such an incredible way of doing that. And and Dana, you know, I love because he, he if poetry is is painting a picture with words, he does it in just a beautiful, beautiful way. And I've always struggled with poetry. Like in high school, I mean, the last English te- class I ever took was AP English in high school. I got out of all of my college. <laughs> you know, university requirements. I've always struggled with poetry for some reason. I obviously love great lyrics. I love great music. I love seeing, you know, the the art of of expressing ideas. I mean, I've even got friends who have done a lot of like death poetry, like, yeah. s- like spoken word type stuff. That's always been really, really cool for me. But like classical poetry, I've really, really struggled with. Shakespeare drives me crazy. Even Dante, I just can't get into it. And I know this is like a real area where I need to grow, but Dana Joya, I think turned me single-handedly into a lover of poetry yeah. because I suddenly, I was, I guess, vibing with it. Like I could actually enter into it and either suffer with him or laugh with him. I mean, he's got an incredible way oh, yeah. in some of his poems as well. But right there, I mean, you are right there in the suffering yep. with him and his family as they're burying their child. I mean, that's just crazy stuff. Yeah, so when, Power of that. So that, and then my other favorite poem, he has one about the shopping mall, which is great. This sort of really deep, philosophical, satirical <laughs> condemnation of unbridled consumerism. Yeah. He also has one about a tabby cat. Yeah. That's just hilarious. You know, like, so, you know, what happens with poetry then, if you're painting pictures with words and entering into it, and his his book, highly recommend Why Poetry Matters. Yes. Incredible book. And he walks through and, and he says, look, here, here's what poetry is meant to do and what it's not meant to do. And, and the reason why poetry for so many of us is, is hard is because as an art, it is pretty broad, right? And so you have to find your flavor and what resonates with you. Hmm. And you have to understand what it's doing. But, you know, he's able to articulate the, about why the written word is so powerful to the human person. Mm. And the real task of a poet is, is to communicate a reality you know, to an audience that might be reading it in a different place, a different time, a different context. You know, it's, it's like good art, right? Good art is helpful to know the background, 
but it's not required, right? Like bad art, you look at it and you're done, right? Good art, you like, you chew and you contemplate and it draws your your eyes towards the horizon, right? So yeah, so we, we when we get, yeah, when second, second or third time we had you out in yeah. Tempe was when we had Dana Joya come and give a talk as well. <laughs> There's only been a few moments in my entire life where I was like basically sharing a stage or kind of like sharing a program with people that, I mean, I just sort of like, felt so unworthy to be anywhere near, much less next to, a, you know, Dan Joy is one of them. Scott Hahn was one. I mean, even those kind of things, it's usually like me off in a breakout room, far, far away. But like somehow in like the promotional, you're like right next to the guy that you would look up to as a hero. Dan Joy is one of those guys. He is obviously a really faithful Catholic. Yep. Obviously a, a massive influencer of American life, culture, maybe even political reality for a while. Education, I'm sure. Absolutely. During his tenure there. And, and his poetry contest, he started, still going. Really? Yeah, which is a national poetry contest, yeah. And so I think long before I even knew he was a poet, I knew he had written this pretty amazing article for First Things in December of 2013. Yeah. So I think this was before we had really met. I certainly had never seen him in person. Maybe about a year later, he came to Nashville to Montgomery Bell Academy, yeah. Academy through the Veritas Project. Probably, probably. I'm yeah. almost positive. And, you know, did almost like a recitation of this essay in a very sort of colloquial form. Anyways, I'm just going to read a few excerpts of it because I think it, in some ways, is near the root system of love good and our understanding of of art, of literature, of what it means to have a Catholic imagination or what I sometimes simply call a sacramental imagination. Even if you're not Catholic, even if you're not a sacramental Christian, you know, you can still unknowingly tap into this way of seeing the world, right? Which is, as we said a few months ago, very incarnational. So he goes, what makes writing Catholic? Well, it's, it's the treatment of subjects permeated by a worldview. In other words, regardless of the adherence of that artist to the worldview or to the, the doctrines itself, it's this way of, of seeing reality. He says, Catholic writers tend to see humanity struggling in a fallen world. They combine a longing for grace and redemption with a deep sense of human imperfection and sin. Evil exists, but the physical world is not evil. Nature is sacramental, shimmering with signs of sacred things. Indeed, all reality is mysteriously charged with the invisible presence of God. Catholic perceive even suffering as redemptive, at least when born in emulation of Christ's passion and death. Catholics also generally take the long view of things. And he goes on and he goes on to describe what he thinks is true Catholic mm-hmm. art, true Catholic sensibility, imagination. Those three or four sentences alone, ah, I think were the first I ever heard that put it all succinctly into language that I felt like I could not only understand, but even communicate to others. Because I think for a long time between my studies at seminary and my love for C.S. Lewis, who though never a Catholic, had that Catholic imagination. Mm -hmm. Obviously people like Chesterton, and frankly, once you're in that world, it's just like this endless ocean, you know, of of artistry and kind of, like sophistication that is still really every man, you know? Yeah, and you said it right. I mean, sacramental imagination is is the proper sort of ethic here, right? You would that you would see nature as not in opposition to grace, 
but as in this beautiful reciprocal dependency upon grace, right? Mm. So that grace builds upon nature. And, right. and like that sacramental imagination is, is willing to see that. You know, and I love Dana Joy points out so beautifully in this essay. Highly recommend everyone read it. It's a very approachable, everyone can read it. You can sit down, you know, in an hour and consume it and say, wow, and I let it just sort of speak and resonate. You'll probably want to go back to it multiple times. But he talks about, you know, Flannery O'Connor and, and other writers. So even those in the affirmation, so like, you know, Flannery O'Connor would be a good example. So Flannery O'Connor describes the Catholic worldview by showing what is lacking in those who are broken. Mm. As she famously says, for those who are hard of hearing, you have to shout and draw startling figures, right? Mm. So she's in the Southern grotesque, what they call literary genre, along with Walker Piercy and T.S. Eliot and others could probably sort of fall in that category a little bit. But, you know, and then those that do it in the, in the affirmative, sort of point out, you know, not what's lacking, but what is. And you know, Dan Joy in this article does a beautiful job describing what is lost in art if you don't have that sacramental imagination. Yeah. And then he also talks about the sort of the question, which is, why have we abandoned that? So think, for you properly understood, for 2,000 years, the greatest supporter of the arts mm. was the Catholic faith, right? The greatest supporter of the arts was, was Christianity in general. I mean, even you know, certainly in Protestantism, you had some whitewashing and whatnot in terms of where they wanted sort of you know, iconoclasm and take away any art. But even among most of the Protestant traditions, there was this very much you know, a development, I mean, Rubens and others, right? In the Dutch school, this beautiful development of art. And so, Daniel, we ask us, what, what happened to that? So think, every major Oscar in the 1940s and 50s was usually a Christian author. Mm. Every major art of renown painted, not just from the Renaissance and Baroque, but previously and going all the way up was a Catholic or, or Christian artist. Mm. Every major poet, every major short story, every every novelist. I mean, really, it's really amazing to think that you go back 40, 50 years ago, you know, in the sort of, you know, the, the high echelon of all the great artists, there was always a number of Catholics because they brought a particular way of seeing the world to their craft. And, and that appealed to a, a broad spectrum, not to everyone, mm-hmm. but appealed to a broad spectrum of people. And so Dana Joy in this article says, well, or this essay, says, what, what happened? Where are those artists? And, and so it's either two options. Either people have stopped reading it, people have stopped consuming that art, or we've abandoned mm. our role in it. And he says, actually, it's we've abandoned our role in it. We've, we have, we've given up too easily. We need to rediscover our contribution to humanity. You know, and think of this for a moment about the integrity it requires. If, you know, if we have a deeply held belief and we're not willing to bring it to somebody, I mean, we, we advocate more for the pizza we like than we do for our own faith. Yeah. I mean, think of that for a moment. How much do you really have to hate someone to not proselytize them? Yeah, the, the beautiful line from none other than, you know, is it was a pen from Penn and Teller who talked about his experience of that. You know, that somebody, he's an atheist, but somebody shared the faith with him and he, he asked the question. He was so struck by it about how loving and honest and the guy maintained eye contact, he kept saying. You know, but he said, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share what you truly believe with them? <laughs> you know, Wow. And so Dan Joyer makes the same argument, you know, in terms of the way, what we bring to our art, whether it be music or poetry or literature, that 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 worldview has something to offer people, whether it be hope or doctrine, the saving truths of the faith, or even just a vision of man that's worthy of us. You think Flannery O'Connor writes some of the most most Catholic and beautiful stories ever without ever mentioning the gospel. Mm. At that same uh, event with Dan Joyer, I gave a paper on the Southern grotesque tradition, specifically Flannery O'Connor and Parker's Back, one of my favorite stories, about the, the, the use of angst in literature, right? Literature as a way of, of, of bringing you right to the precipice of hope and leaving you there. Mm. Essentially saying, wouldn't it be better if this were true? 
with the hope that that is true, right? It sort of brings you right up to the mountains. You know, you either have to run away or confront the truth of how things ought to be. And so Dan Joya points out so beautifully, like this is this is the role of, mm. of really religiously inspired art. And as Catholics and as Christians, we have so much in our heritage to do that. And unfortunately, we've abandoned it. Yeah. And the very fact that you say the phrase Catholic art or Christian music or Catholic fiction, you could go on and on all these different sort of phrases that we now take for granted that in some cases are entire industries unto themselves now. That is, I think, a very, very sad state of affairs when really what I was beginning to suspect and sort of have deep hunches about, Dan and Joy put into words for me very eloquently seven years ago, which is that all truly human art is Catholic art, Mm -hmm. even if you're not Catholic and you're tapping into it, right? You're tapping into these universal principles of what we would maybe call the art of being human, what it really means to be fully human and fully alive. This incredible mystery that is redemptive suffering, that is seeing the physical world as not only not evil, but in fact, a sacramental charged charged with God's grandeur, you know? So I think it's really amazing when you see these sort of prophets kind of rise up out of nowhere. For me, this was a rising up out of nowhere. I didn't realize the history or the the career, you know, of of Dana Joy up until this point. But I have to say it's affected my approach to love good, certainly ever since. I'd say it's also just approached, it's affected my approach to, to even how I not only consume music books and art, but maybe specifically how I want to accompany musicians, mm. artists, and authors as well. Because I think sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking, well, to call this Christian, we've got to make sure we say the number of Christ, the name of Christ, a certain number of times you know, per minute. We've got to only call it Catholic art, for example, if it's sacred and therefore dealing with, you know, sacred images. And I think one of the, yeah, one of the lines that we're constantly trying to ride with Lovegood is that actually the, the sacred and the secular sort of come together with a Catholic imagination and suddenly everything can become a veil behind which you see yeah. the glory of God. How how exciting. What an adventurous and romantic and beautiful way to live. Well, and this is precisely why, like when you bring J.R. Tolkien on the on the big screen, it resonates with people. Yeah. Right? These, even, even in fiction, these stories that are charged with these beautiful truths that are that are hidden within the story. This is why The Hobbit's the most, you know, it's, it's, it's the most published fiction ever. Really? Know? Yeah, can you imagine that? I know, you know? That. So, because it just resonates, these universal themes that come up again and again and, it's and again. so much easier to read than The Fellowship of the Ring. It is, yeah. Hobbit, oh and Hobbit was designed for a younger audience. So, you know? <laughs> People like me. Yeah, it should have well, been, been one movie, but that's just, you know, that's just me. Anyways. Definitely should have been one movie. Yeah, because it's just yeah. it's meant to be a simple story. But yeah, I mean, so I think what Dan Joya points out, what you're, you know, what you're enumerating so well is that, yeah, the reality is that that art is meant to speak to and illuminate truth. Mm-hmm. And in as so much as the art is at the service of truth, then in that sense, it is Catholic in the sense that it's meant to articulate you know, these universal truths that we uphold, these objective truths about reality in the way it is. And sometimes it does it in the positive by saying, hey, here's what it is. Sometimes it does it in the negative, saying, hey, hey here's what you're lacking. Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, Walker Piercy. Yeah. I mean, if you want, you know, I think mandatory reading for the pandemic should be Lost in the Cosmos, <laughs> the last great self-help book uh, by Walker <laughs> Piercy. He, uh, he Seriously, just, you recommend it? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's, it's, it is hilarious. Yeah, you have to understand that he writes it as a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Totally tongue-in-cheek, competing with all the horrible self-help books of the 1980s. But he, he has some, you know, just real hilarious things in there. It's a, it's a funny read. It's not yeah. meant to be like a, 
a cover to cover, though you can read it that way. Hmm. It's like these little vignettes into the human heart and human mind. They're just hilarious. So I, I made the mistake not of picking up that book at the beginning of quarantine, but Flannery O'Connor collected short stories. Hmm. And honestly, the first one I read was just like so dark, it's so, so dark. twisted. I was like, I can't do this again. It's the one with the family and they're riding misfit. off on the highway. Yeah, and then misfit. People are getting assassinated left and right. I'm just yeah. like, I can't handle this. <laughs> it's just like really a dark way to end my day because I read fiction before I go to bed. Yeah. The, the I misfit, couldn't handle it, Ryan. The Misfit's pretty. Actually, if you want to- Misfit, so, that's what it's called. Yeah. yeah like uh, Flannery O'Connor, some great stuff. Like The Geranium is like an amazing piece on racism. <laughs> so it's a story that she tells. I think I mentioned before. Ooh. It's a story she tells where the entire time you uh, assume the guy is this horrible racist because he is, like just by all intents and purposes. He essentially- he, he's, he's an older man taken from his home, forced to live with his children in an inner city apartment and his neighbors are African-American and like he just cannot stand for this. So he's totally racist, right? Yeah. And he's angry at this guy's, this plant across the street. Anyways, oh, story goes on. They started this one too, actually. Yeah, the, the start is really good. What ends up you find out is that this guy's best friend is an African-American man who he hunted with and grew up with. That's right. And everything. And really, his racism is coming out of a brokenness he has. And so the, the, the scene, that the climax of it, is he ends up sort of getting stuck on the stairs and needs help. And the next door neighbor comes over to help him out. Yeah. And he has to either take this guy's hand and his help or not. Mm. And so like, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful critique of racism by, like, by, by pointing out what is lacking if you have a racist view. Mm. Without demonizing the guy, with trying to sensitize the fact this guy's a history and there's issues yeah. going on, right? It's a beautiful way of pointing out the problem with something because what it lacks. Yeah. See, that's such right? a beautiful approach to all things. When you talk about vice, when you talk about sin, when you talk about a world that is as broken as it is, so visibly and obviously broken like never before, it is such a, a far more effective and captivating thing to point out what's missing. Yeah. Wouldn't it be right? better if? Yes. You know? And then suddenly you help people. And this is really what beauty does, right? It helps people long for higher things, yep. so long for a a a greater way of life, a a, a more dignified and, and ennobled and, and beautiful way of living. And again, I just think this is so powerful because even even Dana Joy does this. And one of my favorite essays, probably my number one or number two favorite, not essay, but poem of his is the one on the seven deadly sins. Oh yeah. It might be good to close with this. Let's do it. It's yeah. obviously full of humor as most Dana Joy is. And yeah, just a nice reminder that actually sometimes even the best way to convict ourselves and others of sin, things as uncomfortable and awkward as sin, is to actually have a touch of humor yep. and, and a touch of, hey, no, this is like, this is real and we're not alone. Yep. And all of us have those shadows in our soul that we're constantly trying to overcome, whether yep. that's something very serious and something that right now is very much front and center like racism or things that run a little bit deeper and are a bit more subtle, like, you know, bitterness towards family or yeah. struggles with purity and chastity or things that have been incredibly normalized in a culture that is as sinful and, and dark as it is these days. And how much more than does does the light pierce that? Exactly. That was just you know? exactly what I was going to say. You and I, we're yeah, just- Think alike. <laughs> we're, I mean, hours later, we better be synced <laughs> up, you know? So this is called The Seven Deadly Sins. This came out in August of 2010. And we'll close with this. Forget about the other six, says Pride. They're only using you. Admittedly, lust is a looker, but you can do better. And why do they keep bringing us to this cheesy dive? The food's so bad that even gluttony can't finish his meal. Notice how avarice keeps refilling his glass whenever he thinks we're not looking, while envy eyes your plate. 
Hell, we're not even done and anger is already arguing about the bill. I'm the only one who ever leaves a decent tip. Let them all go, the losers. It's a relief to see Sloth's fat ass go out the door. But stick around. I have a story that not everyone appreciates about the special satisfaction of staying on board as the last grubby lifeboat pushes away. Until next time, Ryan. We'll let Danny have the last word. <laughs> Peace, brother. Thanks. Travelers, misfits, and exiles don't grow cold in the dark of night. Gather for hope and for comfort in his light. In his light. Let us draw near to each other. We are You're listening to We Are One from The Faithful Project. All right, this song features Savannah Locke, who participated in this amazing project. You'll hear all about it next week because Savannah is, in fact, joining Marisol on the podcast live in Nashville. Well, not live, you know, pre-recorded, but live. An amazing conversation and really a, a moment to sort of step back, zoom out, and remember the feminine genius. Again, we'll tell you more about that next week, but we're sitting down with Savannah Locke and Marisol put together this beautiful, beautiful interview and conversation with her that, again, is a celebration of the feminine genius. Not like a feminism gone wrong, right? Not like a feminazism. I'm sure we've all encountered that. I hope that didn't offend anybody. But the reality is there is such a thing as the feminine genius, what it really means to be woman. And we've got to celebrate that as a church and as a culture. And sadly, we are sorely missing that in the world right now. So, Before I go on a tangent about this, I'll save it for next week. Again, Savannah Locke coming in to the Love Good Studio to be on the podcast. But again, I hope you enjoyed this really fun conversation with Dr. Ryan Hanning. As always, it's such a pleasure to sit down with him. And I just want to let you know that apart from all the amazing music, books, and art that you can currently access with free shipping, and in some cases, at deep discounts, okay, at lovegoodculture.com slash store, you can also access your very own copy of Ryan Hanning's magazine that he's helping edit called Hearth and Field, all right? So if you have not gotten your copy of Hearth and Field yet, which is the Lovegood commemorative inaugural edition, by the way, but also if you're looking for everything from signed vinyl records to songbooks, of course, incredible artwork, and not to mention really crazy merch from the last couple of years, just a lot of really fun stuff, all available at lovegoodculture.com slash store, Again, for a limited time only, a lot of really fun deals, not to mention free shipping within the United States. So again, lovegoodculture.com slash store. Treat yourself to a little beauty, a little uh, truth, and a little goodness in your life. And uh, we'll see you next week again with Savannah Locke. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Love Good Podcast. Share this episode link on social media, leave us a review, and join our movement today by subscribing as a patron at joinlovegood.com. You'll start enjoying our premium content and seasonal packages that not only raise your standard for music, books, and art, but that also inspire you to evangelize culture through beauty. We can't wait to accompany you as you change the world.